Hi everyone and welcome back to Dot to Dot, an education podcast for teachers that shines a light on things that are working well in industry and connects them to the classroom. I'm Ryder Tracy, Head of Educational Transformation at Creatable, and in today's episode I'll be talking with Catherine McClellan, Deputy Chief Executive Officer of Assessment at the Australian Council for Educational Research. Welcome Catherine, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me Ryder, I'm very excited to be here and looking forward to talking to you. So the the logical place for us to start the conversation today is probably a nice, easy question around assessment. Can I just ask you, what is assessment and why is it important? It's an excellent question, and it doesn't have a really tightly defined answer. I think of assessment as the process by which someone establishes the status of learning in a student's progress. So a student is making progress through a content area, which is how we usually define it, something like mathematics or English language arts or whatever it happens to be. And they are deepening their knowledge, they're gaining more facts, they're gaining more skills, and they are gaining more sophistication in how they understand the content. So there's a whole sort of combination of things going on. The student is progressing through this and they will continue to progress through it if all goes well, their whole lives. I'm still learning things. so. Assessment is the way we establish where they are. And it's important that we do that because that boundary is right where you want to teach. And assessment should be in the service of learning and teaching. So the assessment tells us where the student's knowledge shifts from solid, well-developed, clear, and it moves into a space where it's still developing. So it may be piecemeal, there may be some misunderstandings, sort of where it first starts to fall apart, where they don't feel confident, they're not fully developed in that space. That is the absolute best zone to teach them in. That's exactly where you want to push them. You want to fill those gaps and push them forward into the next little spaces, build all that up so that piece is solid, and then move forward. And assessment is the way we figure out where does it go from solid knowledge and solid practice and understanding to shaky and yeah, I'm not so sure. And that is the point we want to teach them at. We don't want to reteach things they know. And we don't want to push them into things they're not ready for. And assessment helps us find that boundary. That's the real service of assessment. Oh, what an articulate answer. It it does make me think of some of the sentiments I hear around assessment at times. Um, You know, uh, I guess a classic one that I kind of hear is, I spend so much time assessing, I don't have time to teach. Um, You know, do do you have a kind of a, a feel or a response to that feeling that some teachers have at times? Sure. And I understand where it comes from. I was a secondary teacher at one point in my career before I started doing assessment full time. So I understand how that feels. And I think it's worth partitioning that feeling into what I think really are the two pieces of it. And we often don't separate them, but maybe we should. Assessment is actually frequently in a classroom, an ongoing thing. You do it all the time. You're always looking to see what did your students do? Do they look confused? You read body language and faces and comments and questions. That's all assessment. That's all helping you find that boundary. So we're doing assessment continuously. So from that point of view, yeah, we do a lot of assessment. Now, formalized assessment in the sense of taking a written exam, formal, structured, we're going to check and see if you can do a thing in a very structured way, does take up some classroom time. But I think it actually doesn't take up a huge amount. One of the things we tend to roll into the bundle with that formalized assessment process is preparation. And There's a lot of time spent on test preparation. And I think that is the piece that teachers really do feel is a loss of instructional time. These formal assessments, if you actually count up the amount of time students are formally assessed as in sitting exams, it's not usually a huge amount. It feels like it is because it's often very stressful. But the prep time, I think, is the piece that to me is the most controversial. 
And it is, like I said, driven by consequences, but consequences are a choice. That is a policy decision. It is an educational administration decision. It is a decision by the state. The Commonwealth has a lot of people involved in setting the consequences. And when we set the consequences high, teachers not unreasonably react by spending instructional time and valuable classroom time in preparation. And that I think is the piece that is the hardest to solve. The assessment time is relatively small. It's that formal preparation piece that I think is the piece I at least would like to see go down in terms of how much classroom time it occupies. And that means we have to really balance how frequently we really need to give a high stakes consequential assessment. And you'd see people feel much less like we spend so much time doing test prep. I don't, I mean, as an assessment professional, I don't really want people doing a lot of test prep. That's not valuable to the students. It's rarely valuable to the teachers. And it can even distort the picture we get from the assessment. If the point is really to see where the learning has solidified and where it hasn't, then that cram and exam and forget cycle distorts what the assessment's all about. And so that I'm not happy about the idea that people do that sort of preparation. So I think it's the consequential nature of the exams that drive the test prep time totally logically and understandably. But that's what feels like such a use of classroom time. They'd rather spend elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's um, calls it out really, really clearly. It's the the consequence that drives the prep. The test itself is actually just testing a student's progression through the curriculum, which is what you're teaching anyway. You know, so the negative sentiment towards teaching to a test, if you take that on face value, it doesn't make much sense because we should, you know, teach to the test because the test should be of the curriculum. But if teaching to the test is practicing, uh, make sure you fill in all the multiple choice questions, even if you don't read all the questions so that you might jag, you know, three out of the last five questions that would otherwise be a zero, um, you know, then that becomes quite, um, uh, that's a different conversation altogether. And I guess one of the things that I really liked that you said is part of the role of assessment, you know, and we do formative assessment all the time, but part of the role of assessment is about garnering relevant and reliable information to inform what we do next. And that seems, I mean, every teacher in the world would say, well, yeah, duh. But then when this, the, the, the consequence goes so high, you know, and we have these kind of standardized testing regimes, I guess um, partially because it's, it's a currency that can be understood outside of education. The comparison for schools becomes based on performance in standardized assessment or the funding from government becomes linked to performance in standardized assessment. I guess I'd just like to, um, with your wealth of experience, just give you kind of a, an opportunity to speak into maybe what that looks like when it goes right or, or perhaps what it looks like when it goes a little bit awry. If you have an assessment that is well aligned to the curriculum and the curriculum is well aligned to the instruction and the teachers understand that whole chain of structure about how they want to progress students and how they want to see them grow and evolve and develop their knowledge and they're all happy and healthy learners excited about gaining new knowledge, that's the ideal version. And the assessment should be seamless. It should be completely aligned. Teaching to the test and teaching to the curriculum become the same thing because they are completely aligned with each other. I think when it goes wrong, it goes wrong when that fails, when the assessment isn't aligned to the curriculum, but is still high stake. It's not actually a, necessarily a problem to have an assessment not aligned to the curriculum. If there's something about that that you want to know, and I'm from the United States, and the United States does not have a national curriculum. It's set by states. It's a local control process. There is, however, a national assessment. So by default, you can work out the logic. That assessment can't be aligned to all those curricula. It's just not possible. It couldn't happen. 
That assessment does provide valuable information, but it is consequence free. The students don't even get a score from it. It's actually illegal to give them a score from it. It's a completely different mindset. And that's a sample. It's not a population assessment. We take a sample that's representative of the country and of each state in order to see where their status is. And so it's of policy interest, but it is not consequential. Nobody studies for that exam. Nobody preps for it. You just, it literally does just drop from the sky, get administered and go away. The students don't ever see it again. All you see are aggregate results. So you can do those things and they can also have value. I think the problem is when we get these high stakes assessments that are supposed to assess the curriculum, but may not be terribly well aligned to them. And that is where I think the teachers really feel that disconnect because they're teaching the curriculum. They know what they're supposed to teach and they are teaching it. And then they come to an assessment and feel like it doesn't match that. And so do I teach to the test, which is highly consequential, might get me in trouble or might get me a reward? Or do I teach to the curriculum? They shouldn't have to make that choice. That's exactly, I think, the crux of a lot of the problem is it shouldn't be a choice. They should be the same thing. Teaching the content should be teaching the content. And if you do that well, success on the assessment will follow naturally. I think it's when we pull those apart that we run into trouble. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very, very clear. I'm with you. I'm, I'm converted completely. <laughs> I would like to talk just a little bit about some of your work before you were with ASAR, particularly in relation uh, with working with video as a reflection tool. I guess I'm, I'm interested in, or maybe you could tell everyone sort of listening some of the experiences you've had and your expertise in relation to coding and the use of, of video, um, and then maybe some of the, the findings that you've observed over that time. My personal research interest for a couple of decades now has been about human beings and how they code complex performances of all sorts. So this, you know, scoring videos of people dancing or playing music or creating art or speaking or writing or any kind of complex performance. So there's all sorts of things that fall into this space. And I got into video coding sort of by accident. Um, I got involved in a large project in the U.S. funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation called the Measure of Effective Teaching Study. And what they were planning to do, what we did, was take 3,000 teachers, sample from six large school districts in the United States, and videotape them teaching their classes four times a year for two years. So we had on the order of 25,000 videos of these teachers. And we brought a 360-degree camera set up, dropped it in their classroom, said, off you go, teach your class, be back in an hour, and take the camera away. So they didn't have to do any specific preparation. They just, we brought the materials in and said, do what you were going to do and teach your class. These videos were absolutely fascinating. One of the high points of my life was getting to watch hundreds of teachers teach their classes. It was great. But it turned out we didn't actually know a whole lot about how you score a video of someone. That was a poorly researched area, and yet we had this monster project and this giant pile of videos and thought, hmm, we should probably figure out what on earth we're going to do with them. There were instruments for teacher observation that had been developed and largely had been intended as a live observation instrument. So you'd sit in the back of a classroom and you'd code the teacher interacting with the students and teaching their lessons. And so we adapted those for the purpose of scoring this round of videos. We had a couple thousand people marking the videos because obviously there were a lot of them. So we built that entire study around establishing the collection of reliable data for statistical analysis and statistical modeling in that study. And I think we were generally quite successful. It worked pretty well. The MET study was very influential. It got a lot of publicity. It was very expensive. It was high profile. It was the Gates Foundation. There were a lot of things going on. I have a story where I was on the front page of the New York Times with this piece of work, and it's a big deal. And it was designed to do what it did, collect reliable data for statistical analysis and modeling in this study. But because it looked similar, I think, to classroom observation, 
the model we built for a statistical analysis study got transferred into classrooms without a lot of thought. I had not designed it to give accurate and actionable and useful feedback to a teacher. But they took it sort of wholesale and dropped it into a classroom like it would also do that. And it turned out that it didn't do that terribly well. It wasn't designed to do that. It was, it was the equivalent of you can probably drive a wood screw with a hammer, but you may not be real happy with the outcome. <laughs> and I think it actually had what I would consider to be a negative impact on teaching because it was, again, we're talking about high stakes things. This was a high stakes thing. And a lot of states and jurisdictions in the U.S. used it. For consequential decisions about, say, teacher pay, um, termination, hiring, firing. And like I said, it was not designed for that reason. Now, if you use video of teachers and you use it correctly and appropriately in a well-designed approach, it can be one of the most valuable professional learning experiences teachers can have once you get through the horror of watching yourself on video, which I don't like to do either. I completely understand where they're coming from. But if you can get past watching yourself, it is revelatory how much you can learn from watching yourself. You can be certain as the teacher that you told the kids their homework was X and it's due on this date. You can watch a video and realize you didn't say it. There's no question about whether or not you said it. You can watch yourself and think, I was sure I said that and I didn't. So there are really valid and valuable ways to use video observation of teachers. It can be a gigantically useful tool. But as a high consequence, high stakes, evaluative tool, I don't think it was very successful. So it sort of got turned into this weapon and teachers got very turned off at the idea of being videoed and being evaluated in this way for understandable reasons. Where it, and that's a shame because it's a really good tool when used properly. And it's a really harsh tool when used improperly. And it did teaching no service and it should have. It should have been this moment where we had an opportunity to say, here is a thing that can help you improve teaching practice. Let us help you with this, because every teacher wants to be better. They strive to be better. They work incredibly hard to be better. And here was a place where we could have said, this could be a support. I think instead we turned around and said, this is a weapon we can hurt you with. And that was a real disappointment. It was fascinating work to do, and it could have been such a boon to the education community, and it just wasn't. Did you feel like you could tell the difference uh, when you were watching? I mean, that's a lot of video. Um, did you feel like you could tell the difference between when a teacher was performing and when a teacher was kind of naturally teaching their own lesson or, or was that kind of hard to spot? You know, because I know when I've had someone observing my practice, I'm conscious of the observation, even if it is recorded. So, yeah, I'm curious if you could tell, if you felt like you could tell, here's someone performing and here's someone's genuine practice. <laughs> Well, we could tell. Um, it was Some of them were really, really funny to watch. I'm not in the sense that I'm trying to critique the teachers, but it was funny for the ones who were really very uptight about being in front of cameras. You could always tell. We have had a number of cases where you can clearly tell somebody is, just like you said, you would be upright and uptight and scared about being in front of the camera. But one of the interesting things about the camera is they seem to forget it's there faster than they forget a human is there. If you have a principal in the back of the room watching, I think they're aware the whole time that the administrator is there. The camera, they'll play to it off, often for a few minutes to begin with, and then they seem to sort of forget it's there. Because it's not animate. You're not interacting with it. It's not looking at you in the same way that a person does. So they'll forget, which is great, because then they really do teach naturally. 
Um, sometimes a little more naturally than might be completely optimal. Um, I have heard conversations where they've clearly forgotten they were wearing a microphone. We go out in the hall to talk to somebody. They, she's forgotten she has on a mic. <laughs> I don't think she meant for us to hear that. <laughs> yeah, out. So I think there is a real range in terms of how much they perform. Teachers, when you say, take a video of your best teaching, whatever that is, just you choose. You can choose whatever day, whatever group, whatever class, whatever content. Just take a video of yourself doing your best work. A surprisingly large number of them hear that as stand in front of a class and lecture and almost without stop. Just talk the whole time. There's blah, 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 blah. They think that's what we're looking for. And it is frequently sort of the opposite of what we're looking for. It's not great instruction. And most teachers know that. If you ask them, was your best class one where you talked for an hour, they'll tell you no, it was not. But when we say, show me your teaching, they seem to think that, you know, show me you talking the whole time. Whereas most of the time, the really stellar classes where we just, your socks are blown off and your hair is flying and then when you're watching everything, and that's the most amazing instruction I've ever seen. The teachers aren't carrying the freight. I mean, you know, they already know Shakespeare. They already know the chemistry. They don't need to carry the freight. They need the students to do it. And the really stellar teachers showed us that by having the students do the work. And if they made mistakes, that's part of learning. It's fine. And they understood when I say good teaching, that's what we mean. When the students are actively learning, it is the best classes. They're so amazing. And you see them and just think, I wish I was in that class. Those classes are just stellar. Oh, that's that's a fascinating observation. It, it reminds me, Catherine. Um, we've just spent some time uh, working with with Meta, with formerly Facebook, you know, and they talk about you know the idea of engagement, you know, in the digital age, and that they have this phrase called "serve dessert first, you know, and they think if you think about a traditional advertisement, you know, the advertisement kind of goes here's a problem, we'll build tension over 30 seconds and then we'll introduce a product that relieves that tension at the end and then you'll want to buy that product. And then you think about a lesson plan. Most lesson plans I've kind of created and executed have been introduced some prior learning, you know, and then some structure around the activity we're going to do. You know, I probably talk a little bit longer than I needed to and, you know, over-explain a lot of the content. That's probably the first 15 minutes, 20 minutes of my class. And then I set the kids free to learn the actual part of the lesson where the best learning is happening is definitely when they're doing. But the bit that I would film, you know, I'm feeling a bit sheepish talking to you. The bit that I would film that I think you want to see is my setup, you know, to get them to that point. So I really take your point. It's a little sobering, but I take your point absolutely in that. <laughs> it, it, it was fascinating to watch the teachers who I thought were the most skilled really frequently within five minutes they sort of toss a problem out they'd have a brief discussion of it and they sort of hand it over to the kids and say what would you do how would you make that happen how would you solve this problem we have this problem it's an interesting problem what would you do and then just let them roam around and make mistakes and say you know it was a safe space to say what might be perceived as dumb ideas but the kids were so comfortable and knew that this is how you learn. Like you get in there and you start digging around and you get your hands dirty and you think and you propose ideas and your classmates say, no, that'll never work because of this. All of that is the process of learning and it's really visible when your kids are engaged and they're thinking and their minds on. They're not just eyes on. They're not just looking at you and being compliant. Their brains are just in and you can tell that level of excitement in the classroom when they start to get it. Like, oh, I have an idea. And then they're like, oh yeah, that'll work if we just do this. 
just those classes are so I mean, you just get chills watching them they're so good they're so amazing and there are so many good teachers out there doing that and this, and we say video yourself it's your best teaching and that's not where they send them yeah <laughs> I just want to cry. Yeah. Like I know they're there. I have seen them. And it, when people who have the confidence to send us a video where they talk 10% of the time, amazing classes. I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm feeling your passion for it too, which is, is really nice. Um, so I'm interested in innovative assessment, both in the way we assess, but, but also what we assess, um, particularly in relation to, I guess, global skills. And from a lifetime assessor, you know, a PhD in measurement, secondary maths teacher, you know, and a very passionate person in and around this space. What your thoughts are around content and approach for assessment in the future and what are the things we should look out for and consider um, implementing into our practice? There's been a confluence of things, some of which have been terrible in some ways and might have some silver lining good points in others. And COVID, I think, is one of them. Technology is the other that there's been a confluence of those two things that has pushed forward an idea that's been around in education for obviously a very long time around this. We call it individualization, personalization, individual learning. There's a lot of terminology for it. But the idea that each student has something of a unique learning progression, that their progress through content, depending on the particular content area, varies somewhat. It's not perfectly linear. Everybody doesn't follow in a lockstep. School looks like school kind of remarkably the world over. You know, kids sit in groups and they're all the same age and they learn the same stuff and there's a teacher there who's helping them. The basic structure is really similar. And that, to some extent, they call it the factory model. It has been very successful in getting a lot of people through education. So I'm not saying it's all bad. But one of the reasons we've done it that way was in order to do it at the scale, we wanted to do it to teach all the kids. But it doesn't work perfectly. You'll hear people talk about, you know, the forgotten third, the 20 something percent of students who just aren't successful. That's not acceptable. It's never been acceptable. But we haven't had a real way to get out of our problem of scale, that individualization and scale fight each other directly. But with technology coming in and with a massive unexpected move to remote learning, I think there's been some examples of the possibility of really starting to be more individualized, to go with that idea of each student having their own trajectory and their own path, that maybe they don't all have to be 13 years old and in year eight to learn Romeo and Juliet, whatever it is, that maybe some kids are ready to learn that at 10 and maybe some kids aren't ready to learn it until 18 and that's fine as long as they get through it and meet whatever we consider to be an acceptable standard of achievement and learning in solid knowledge that they don't all have to do it at the same time. You don't have to know linear equations on Thursday, as long as you learn them before you know, some terminal point in your education. And so the ability to build, I think, more individualized paths is starting to coalesce. And that would have to go with assessment, because if we are allowed and support all the students to go and flourish in their own paths, which I think is a good thing, we have to have some way of knowing where they are and where they end up. We're going to say that you're competent in math, then you have to be able to do these things by the time you exit, whenever that is and however you get there. So the assessment has to, I think, play an important role as education becomes individualized. That's great. But we need those assessments to say you have achieved the thing we consider to be an acceptable exit point. And we haven't thought through, I think, with full clarity how that whole system could look. Because it's a pretty radical change for how education has functioned. And it's not going to happen immediately. Education is a gigantically inertial thing. 
with good reason. There's millions and millions and millions of people involved in it. It's not, we shouldn't be able to move it overnight. That'd probably be bad. But I think it is starting to move towards the idea that maybe we could really individualize and that is going to rely heavily on assessment. Um, the way I've been uh, concluding the podcast normally is I normally say, imagine a scenario where you have the opportunity to teach every 10-year-old in the world and they're going to carry whatever learning intention you deliver successfully out from it. But now I have to reframe that question. So imagine that every student from the start of their education to when they're considered graduating out into partaking in society, um, that you were in charge of a moment on their journey where everyone would acquire one skill, you know, that they would carry with them for the rest of their life. What would that skill be? What would you want them to carry for the rest of their life to be that, as you said at the start, that lifelong learner to equip them for success after formal schooling? I feel like I'm going to betray my personal quantitative and mathematical leanings. My background is very quantitative. But I have to say, proficient and comfortable reading, the people who can really be fully literate so that they're comfortable reading, they know how to get information out of a written text or an oral text, listening to something, that whole space around understanding how to use language to gain information is such an essential skill. And people need to acquire it young. So getting it, getting as early as possible for students to feel comfortable with that ability to get information out of either written or oral language enables them to do anything. From there on, you've got it all. You can read, you can hear, you can comprehend, and you can learn. And at that point, you can learn anything you want to learn. That skill to me is foundational to everything else. Uh, that's, that's a beautiful answer. Catherine, I think we'll have to talk to you again because there is about 50,000 questions that I have. There's anecdotes galore and, um, and lots of your work speaks for itself as well. It has been an absolute pleasure and a real, by far, a highlight for me. Thank you so much for joining us today and um, good luck with all the work that's coming with Acer and we look forward to uh, benefiting from all of that great work that you do. Thank you, Ryder. This has been great fun. I'll come back anytime and tell you as many stories as you'd like to hear. Thank you for having me. Hearing Catherine talk with clarity and conviction about what could be was really inspiring. It resonated for me that assessment is a tool. It's something that you can use to inform activity. It should be used to collect information to inform our actions. When assessment is relevant and reliable, it can really empower teachers and teaching. But when it's used for accountability, judgment and comparison, it can really disempower teachers and have the opposite effect to what it's intended. I had to really self-reflect on her observation about filming your best practice. I'm challenged by that. I think if I was given the opportunity to send in my best practice, my best teaching, I probably would have fallen into the trap of sending here's some footage of me talking to kids. But now it's been pointed out, it's really obvious that the best learning, of course, happens when students are doing, not listening, and that I really need to take that into account as I move forward and reflect on my teaching practice. And finally, I really appreciated Catherine's intelligence and articulation of what's possible in the future. As she said, it's an exciting time to be in education and assessment. Thanks for listening to Dot to Dot. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a review. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't, what you'd like more of, or what you learned. Reviews help us reach more listeners so that we can keep bringing you awesome conversations about what you want to hear about. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up to date with each episode as they come out. 
Dot to Dot is a creatable podcast hosted by me, Ryder Tracy, and produced by Sophie Ellis. This episode was recorded on Darawal and Darug Country. Thanks for sticking with us through season two. Uh, we're getting better, I hope you think. <laughs> we'll be back uh, after a short break early in the next term.